Podcastle, episode 395, for December 22, 2015. Winter Ginny, by Tim Pratt and Heather Shaw. Rated PG-13. Hello, and welcome back to Christmas Castle. Uh, no, I probably mean Happy Holidays Castle, or as it's known colloquially, Podcastle. Hi. You know, folks, when Rachel and I got the keys to the Podcastle, I'd be lying if I said it wasn't a little daunting. Following Anna and Dave's footsteps, who wouldn't be intimidated? I'd like to think that over the past nine or so months, We've settled in pretty nicely here at the old castle and brought you some wonderful stories, developing our own editorial style as we go. But today let's focus on this word. Tradition. And here at Podcastle, a big tradition is The Christmas Story by Heather Shaw and Tim Pratt. It started way back with episode 136, The Christmas Mummy. I remember hearing that one when it first came out and being utterly, utterly enchanted. In fact, if, if you've never heard it, go back right now and listen to it. Go on, we'll still be here when you get back. And we're back. Did you really go listen to it? No, you probably didn't, but that's okay. Do go and listen to it later. It's really wonderful. And honestly, every one since has been a wonderful holiday treat. All of which is to say, their tradition continues, my friends. Today we are enormously proud to present The Winter Ginny by Tim Pratt and Heather Shaw. We'll throw some links in the show notes to their websites. And I did make reference to Anna and Dave before, and speaking of Dave, the California king himself, who better to read this one for you? You do remember Dave Thompson, right? I mean, he was here for five years. Of course you do. And if you're new here and have never encountered Dave's narrations, I envy you, because you're in for a treat. And so, take it away, Dave, Heather, and Tim. And you? Please do enjoy the story. Winter Jenny by Tim Pratt and Heather Shaw. The mostly absent owner of Knockbox, the cafe where I worked, liked to decorate the place with old coffee and tea-related paraphernalia. From my customary post behind the counter, I could gaze all I liked on rusty tin signs advertising nickel cups of joe and high shelves crowded with antique French presses, tea services, coffee mills, cups, saucers, stainless steel milk pitchers, and iron roasting pans, mostly picked up from thrift stores and estate sales. I'd find the decor most quirkily charming if our espresso machine wasn't an antique in its own right, bulky and prone to unexpected steamy outbursts that infused the air with a rich aroma of burnt coffee. But being able to coax good brew out of it was a point of pride, too. I'd started working at the box when I was a design student at UC Santa Cruz, grabbing part-time shifts as classes and recreation allowed, and I'd just never quit, 
picking up hours after graduation until I hit full-time, and by age 24, I'd risen to the rarefied heights of organizing schedules and teaching undergrads even surlier than I'd ever been how to pull shots and steam milk. Somehow, I wasn't entirely drunk with power. The day I emancipated Izzy, and the lull of winter break when the students were mostly gone visiting their families, the boss had left a jumbled box of his latest decorative scroungings, and my job as manager included finding a place to put them. After we closed and cleaned up and I shoot out my best barista jade, I opened up the box. There was a red Fiesta teapot that would have been pretty if not for the inexpert glue job someone had used to repair it, but maybe I could turn it so the crack wasn't visible. There was a French press, pretty standard, except the glass was cobalt blue, which I'd never seen before. The last thing was the best, though. A brass dalla, the traditional Arabic coffee pot. I'd often listened to the boss go on about the origins of coffee brewing, and he talked about the perfection of the dalla, a design unchanged for centuries. Basically, it resembles a fancy pitcher with a bulbous hourglass shape to the body, a curved handle, and a crescent-shaped spout that looks kind of like a bird's beak. This particular dalla was old, the brass darkened by age and patina, but its entire surface was intricately filigreed with images of flowers, clouds, curves that might have been water, and spikier curves that might have been fire. The thing was a work of art and a coat of dust. I buffed the surface with a rag, and just like in cartoons, episodes of The Twilight Zone and Bad Jokes, torrents of white smoke poured out of the spout. My first thought wasn't genie, but something panicked and incoherent about poisoned ancient air. I was thinking of those tombs Egyptian explorers opened that released vile miasmas. The smoke dissipated quickly, though, and it didn't smell bad. It didn't smell like anything and even seemed to shoo the ever-present odor of coffee from the air. Then, I noticed the white-robed man standing behind the counter with me, except he wasn't a man. Most men aren't nine feet tall, and he wasn't standing. He was hovering a foot off the ground, which meant he was really only eight feet tall. That didn't comfort me. I stumbled back, dropping the dollar, and he winced and bent at the waist to pick it up gently setting the vessel down on the counter. I couldn't see much of him with the robe and the hood, but his skin was dark, his eyebrows darker, his eyes darker still, his eyelashes long and beautiful, his face long and narrow and sad. He seemed to be just slightly the wrong scale, a little bit larger than he should have been in every dimension. And yeah, after the initial shock, I wondered if it really was every dimension. I've always had a thing for dark-eyed men with beautiful lashes. Master, he said, you have summoned me. How may I serve you? I stared at him. That's when I thought genie, so I said, genie? He winced. An unfortunate corruption. We call ourselves, well, my people are the Jen. I am a Jenny. What shall I call you? I'm Max. Maxwell. Hello, Max. Uh, Maxwell. He gave me a thin smile, just a flash of teeth. I jest. I understand your meaning. 
You have summoned me, and I am compelled to serve. What do you desire? I probably should have thought I was dreaming or going crazy, but there was something so real, even hyper-real about him, that I didn't. I just frowned. This, wait, th this is a whole three wishes thing? Some of my brethren are bound under such terms. I have no such limitations. While you live and possess me, I will serve. I cannot grant eternal life. Even my own life is not eternal. But most other things, he shrugged. I serve at your pleasure. You're a genie. Sorry, Jenny. So what, you've been enslaved? Trapped in a coffee pot for centuries or something? A great and treacherous scholar tempted me into a trap. I was young by the standards of my kind and foolish. He knew the secret ways to bind me, and so. Another shrug, somehow in a sadder key of body language. I am bound. Yeah, no, screw that. I shook my head. I don't do slavery. How do I set you free? He stared at me with such sudden and ferocious attention that I realized how bored he'd been before, how resigned, how essentially uninterested. He'd been mostly inner-directed, but now he was directed at me. You wish to set me free. I nodded. Then I chewed my lower lip for a moment. But, hold up, are you, you evil or something? If I set you free, will you turn into a tornado made of fire and scimitars and kill everyone in sight? No. The jinn are not unlike your kind. Some of us are kind, and some of us are cruel. I am not cruel. I am mostly tired. But I pledge to you, by the heart of the flame, that I mean your kind no harm. The only ill will I bear is toward those who have bound me, and all of them are dust now. Okay, then, what do I do? Wish for your freedom? I could tell he was trying to keep his cool. I tried to imagine what it must be like for him, to have me offer him freedom. I thought it might be like showing up for work, only to be told, No, you don't have to work today, and here's a million dollars. And there are some guys in the back who row crew and work part-time as underwear models who want to get to know you better. You need only destroy the vessel. Oh. I picked up the dollar. It was a beautiful thing, but it was a prison. The hell with prisons. I went into the back and came back with a hammer and just beat the crap out of the thing, denting the bronze body, knocking off the handle, smashing the spout. There was more smoke, black this time with a peppery odor, but it dissipated too, and I looked up at the Jenny. Is that good? He settled down on the floor, no longer hovering. He grasped my hands in his, and there were tears in his eyes. Those I watched, they steamed and turned to vapor. Yes, I. Yes. This close, I could smell him. Smoky hints of coriander and paprika. The whole tears to steam thing honestly freaked me out, so I grasped for some normalcy. What's your name, anyway? I cannot speak my true name in this form, but I have been called Ismat. I cannot believe you set me free. 
that you willingly gave up such power. I shrugged. I'm not down with slavery. As for power, from where I sit, most people with power use it to make things worse. I like to think I'd do a better job, but if I'm getting my power from exploiting someone else, I go out and protest against that kind of stuff. Is this truly such an enlightened age? I snorted. Now, lots of people are awful. My uncle says I'm still young and idealistic and I'll become a conservative once I get knocked around a little by life. Maybe it's true, but for now, I still know right from wrong. Thank you, Ma. Maxwell. No problem, and call me Max. Then you can call me... I noted his long hesitation. How about I call you Izzy, I said. Another flash of smile, but this time genuine, not bitter as day-old cold brew. Izzy. I would like that. I will repay you, Max, for this kindness. Perhaps not soon, but in time. I didn't do it because I wanted a reward, Izzy. He nodded seriously. I know. That is why you deserve one. He vaulted over the counter like a gymnast doing a handspring over a pommel horse, ropes flapping, and then charged for the door. I almost yelled for him to watch out, but he suddenly went soft around the edges. There was a whoosh and a cloud of pale smoke slipped through the cracks around the door and vanished into the night. I took the body of the broken dollar to the pier that night, and when no one was looking, I tossed it out into the ocean as far as I could. Later, I chucked the handle into the sea in another spot, out beyond some tide pools off Highway 1 north of town. Who knew if that weird-ass filigree had any power left in it? Maybe the dollar could be repaired and Izzy bound again. I didn't want anyone else to find the pot or to have it in my own life as a temptation. I felt a little like I'd given up a winning lottery ticket, sure, but it was more like giving up blood diamonds, and I wouldn't have been able to live with myself if I'd taken advantage. Not for nothing do I have a button I bought at a science fiction convention that reads Social Justice Paladin. I thought I'd have to come up with a story about the missing dollar, but my boss never asked about it. Maybe he'd never really noticed, just a box of junk by reflex action. I figured I'd write the whole thing off as just a weirdo experience, and maybe even someday come to think I'd dreamed it. But I kept seeing Izzy around the rest of that winter, and into the spring and summer too. He still looked basically the same, except not hovering, not built one-fourth over scale, and dressed more conventionally, in hoodies and jeans and scuffed boots. From what I could tell from a distance, the body he'd been hiding under those robes was not one that should be hidden. He never came into my cafe, though I saw him drinking espresso on the deck at Cafe Pergolisi once, and another time ambling down Pacific Avenue, and a third waiting in line at a gourmet taco truck. Each time he either didn't notice me or pretended not to, or ducked his head and scurried away. Maybe he felt weird about me, uncomfortable because he felt he owed me, or Nervous I still had the dollar and might change my mind about letting him go. So when I saw him thumbing through old jazz albums at Streetlight Records, I walked up to him and said, Hey, Izzy, how's it going? He looked at me, brows rising in surprise, and I thought about how pretty his eyes were, especially for an ageless and human being who came from some desert land. 
Max. Hello. I... Hello. There was that scent of smoky spice again. You like jazz? I am learning what I like. I began flipping through the rows of vinyls myself so it wouldn't feel so on the spot. I just wanted you to know I threw away the dollar in a couple of different places out into the ocean. I don't know if it's still dangerous, but I thought better safe. I appreciate your consideration. His tone was grave and sincere. You decided to stay in town. He nodded, and there was a flash of familiar mournfulness. I thought of returning home, but the idea of crossing the ocean is... My people are folk of air and fire. With so much water between us, it is daunting. Right. Do you miss... I mean, do you guys have families, or... We are largely solitary, but I did have some I considered friends, or at least allies. But it was so long ago, he shrugged. I realized that although I had no reason to stay here, I had no particular reason to leave either. Izzy looked around as if to make sure we weren't overheard. I confess I am interested in your people. Most of my experience with humankind was not good, but you showed me a different side of your kind, and I have kept an open mind. You said that many people are awful, but I am not sure. I think most people are... trying. Only some forget what they are trying to do. Good to know someone can be as old as you are and still be an optimist, Izzy. Come by and visit me at the cafe sometime, okay? I will come when the time is right, he said. Tell me, are you a Christian? I shook my head. I'm not really anything. Before I met you, I would have said I was a scientific materialist. I think I still am. I just tell myself you're an unknown species of energy being or something and try to forget about the whole thing where you can grant wishes. He chuckled, rich and warm, and I was glad he could laugh. He probably hadn't laughed much during his centuries of captivity. I only wondered if you celebrated Christmas. It was almost Christmas when you set me free. I nodded. Sure, my family always celebrated in that secular way, decorating the tree, candy in your socks, Santa Claus, not so much with the nativity stuff. Left to my own devices, I don't do much besides watch Christmas specials on TV and eat candy canes, though. Two years ago, I'd taken my boyfriend home for Christmas to meet my family, but that boyfriend had graduated to emeritus status and was living in Amsterdam. The Christmas after I liberated Izzy, I stayed in Santa Cruz, keeping it low-key. This year was looking likely to be the same, since there was no one I really wanted to spend the holidays with. When you go on enough first dates, you can fool yourself that you aren't too lonely, but when you're sitting alone in your house with It's a Wonderful Life on TV, the illusion can get a little thin. Why? Are you Christian? I immediately thought it was a stupid question. I'd read a bit about the djinn, and knew they were reckoned to be something more than human and less than angels. Maybe he'd met God? There was a fair bit about the djinn in Islamic scripture, but who knew if it was true? Or Muslim? I was born before Christ and the prophet, the djinn said. 
I have never met the God they revered, but great and mysterious things rise in the desert, so who can say? He cleared his throat. Such a human gesture had endeared him to me even more. I wondered more if it would be appropriate for me to give you a Christmas present. Oh, you don't have to give me anything. If it would be unwelcome. No, no, it's not that. I just don't feel any obligation. If you want to get me something, feel free. It'd be nice. I gave an awkward laugh. Sorry, I don't mean to be weird. Our situation is a bit weird. I will see you later, Max. Izzy rested his hand on my shoulder, briefly, then took an album, Bird, I think, up to the counter and went on his way. Contrary to his word, though, I didn't see him again that summer or into the fall. I began to think he'd changed his mind, decided to brave the sea crossing, or at least decided to check out the local deserts. Maybe there were American gin out in the Mojave somewhere. Fall came and the tourists ebbed out of town and the students flooded back. I went on more first dates. I was starting to feel too old to sleep with undergrads, but I didn't feel like a real grown-up either. Other people my age getting married or traveling the world or climbing occupational ladders. I was content where I was, but maybe content was just another way of being lazy? Work got busier. A couple of people at the box quit because their school schedules were too busy, and we had some new hires, the usual September upheaval. The boss gave me more responsibility, and I got a crush. One of my exes told me I was the master of nerdy cute, and I'll claim that on a good day, but my secret shame is I'm attracted to buffed-out athletic types. Give me a shirtless swimmer with that V-shaped torso thing happening, and those diagonals running down from the hip bones to the groin. It's called the inguinal crease, something I learned so I could look for pictures of it online. Shut up. And I'm hypnotized. I don't know what it is. The hot jock thing just strips a wire in my brain, even though I don't deep down I'm better off with brooding indie rock types. Enter Brendan, newly hired swim coach at some high school in town. A dimple in each cheek and one in his chin. Floppy brown hair, and though he was never conveniently shirtless, I could intuit things. He was from Australia, as if I wouldn't have had a crush on him hard enough without the accent anyway. He came in one day in October and asked if I knew how to make a flat white, and I said yes, because my boss is a completist about these things. Besides Aussies, it's just a wet cappuccino, at least from where I sit. Not that I'd ever say that to Brendan. Brendan came back a lot after that first drink, almost every day, and I heard if I wasn't working, he'd just walk back out again. But apparently because I was the only one who made the drink the way he liked, not because of my irresistible magnetism. I didn't get a clear vibe off him in terms of his sexual preferences, and he never came in with or mentioned a boyfriend or a girlfriend, but... He did make a point of talking to me a lot if we were slow, and that smile. But maybe he was just nice to everybody? I didn't get to the point of doodling his name in a notebook or anything, but I was crushing hard. It got so I was disappointed if I worked and he didn't come in. I felt ridiculous. Baristas are supposed to be the objects of secret yearning crushes, 
not get those crushes themselves. Indeed, I'd gotten more than a few sheepish messages from customers who'd stumbled on my profile on assorted dating sites, and had even gone on a couple of decent dates with cute ones. A thorough scouring of those sites never turned up any sign of Brendan, though. Maybe he was some weird Luddite who only dated people he'd met in person. Then again, he'd met me in person, so maybe that was good. You see how much he made my brain spin? Fall moved on toward winter. While the chain coffee shops were getting slammed with holiday traffic, crowded with people buying peppermint-flavored everything and special holiday coffee blends and colorful bags with bows on them, we mostly catered to the student trade and neighborhood folks, so we were not unduly slammed once winter break hit. Brendan still came in, though, and on the solstice we were slow enough that after serving his hot cup of foam I leaned toward him, trying to catch a whiff of his clean sweat scent as I did so and said, Any plans for the holidays? My family's all back in Perth, but I can't afford to fly back this year, so I reckon I'll just knock around town, maybe spend all day at the movies. Seems healthier than spending the holiday in a bar somewhere. He smiled, making his dimples more pronounced. How about yourself? My family's just in Southern California, but I'm staying in town this year, too. I was trying to figure out if it would be too weird to ask him if he wanted company at the movies. The problem with doing almost all my dating outreach online is how hard it is to approach someone in real life. How am I supposed to talk to someone without knowing the six things they can't live without, and whether they're vegetarians or smokers or think their astrological signs are very important? I didn't even know Brendan's orientation or relationship status. This was like caveman dating. I felt a warm breeze, strange because even in Santa Cruz, December is cool, and looked to see if someone had left the door standing open, but it was closed. Brendan suddenly leaned very close over the counter and said, Are you busy tonight, Max? Not really. I told myself he couldn't actually hear my heartbeat speeding up. He ran his finger around the rim of his coffee cup, got a dollop of foam on his fingertip, and licked it off. Want to come over to my place? Uh, sure, yes, definitely. Uh, why? I could smell my own sweat as my body heated up. You don't know why. He took another finger full of foam and sucked it off, staring into my eyes. Was I being too subtle? I think I get it. Good. Take out your phone. We exchanged numbers, and then a rush of people came in, all very confused about what they wanted to drink, some of them apparently confused about what coffee even was, and Brendan disappeared to a remote table. My phone buzzed, but I was too busy doing the barista dance to check it for a while. When I did, there was Brendan's address and a note about how he couldn't wait to see me. Maybe grown men shouldn't squee in the workplace, but I did. Brendan had a room in a shared house not far from downtown, but his housemates were all out, so we had the place to ourselves. I brought over a bottle of wine, and we actually got around to pouring glasses, though not drinking them, before he pushed me up against the counter and kissed me. His body pressing against me was so solid, so powerful and he kissed like he was trying to memorize my taste forever. His mouth was sweet, with a touch of lingering coffee. 
After a long, panting period, we came up for air, and I said, Wow, I'm so glad you asked me over. I've been crushing on you for weeks, but I didn't know you were into guys. A strange look passed over his face, a cloud that made his dimples disappear. I didn't know either. I've only ever dated women before, and you, well, make a good coffee. You're nice to chat to, but I don't know why. All of a sudden today, I just had to have you. He tried to kiss me again, but I put a hand against his chest. <sighs> what a chest. And said, wait, you've never been with a guy before? Never so much as kissed one. Never had the urge. I reckon you're just something special. I thought of that warm breeze I'd felt in the cafe. I thought of Izzy asking if he could get me a present. I thought of him saying, My folk are folk of air and fire. Brendan, uh, Brendan, I... This is great, but I need to run outside for a minute. I, um, forgot something in my car. I've got condoms, mate, no worries. Still plenty from when my girlfriend visited last month. That shadow passed over his face again, and I scuttled out from beneath him in the counter. Yeah, it's not that. It's, uh, there's an emergency at work. I'll be in touch. I hurried out over his protests, down the steps to the sidewalk, around the corner to where my car was parked. I got inside and closed my eyes and put my forehead against the steering wheel. I took a deep breath and was hit with the aromas of coriander and paprika. What is wrong? Izzy said. I looked to the passenger seat where the Jenny sat, visibly nervous, almost twitching. That was you, right? Brendan wasn't suddenly seized with overwhelming desire for me just out of the blue, was he? I saw how you looked at him. Izzy's tone was puzzled. It seemed to me that you desired him. Was I mistaken? I groaned. Sure, I desired him, but I didn't want you to cast a love spell. Do you remember when I set you free what I said? I don't do slavery? But you are a good man. Izzy was so earnest I wanted to slap him. You would treat him well. That doesn't matter. You can't mind control somebody into liking you, Izzy. Or... Obviously you can, but you shouldn't. It's not right. He's not even gay. He has a girlfriend. Izzy nodded slowly. I see. Yes. I am sorry. I thought of you, of your desires, and I did not think... Take the love spell off him, please? Of course. It is already done. I only wanted to give you something that would make you happy. As happy as you made me. You could have bought me a nice bottle of whiskey or something, Izzy. It would have been fine. No, he shook his head. I have researched this. A proper gift is given from the heart. You should observe what your friend wants, what sparks joy in them, and take careful note. Your gift should surprise and delight. Yes, this is how your gift of freedom made me feel. What could be a gift comparable to freedom except love? I don't want love if it's not freely given, Izzy, I sighed. I get it. You're not a person. You don't understand. 
person things. The gen do things differently. The power you have, it must be hard to avoid using it. We have a saying about how absolute power corrupts absolutely. I don't think you're corrupt. I'm not saying that, but I'd really rather you just didn't use that power around me. I am trying, Izzy said softly. I am trying to learn. Yeah, but now, poor Brendan, even with the spell gone, he's going to be seriously confused about things, questioning his sexuality. He might feel like he has to confess to his girlfriend and she'll freak out. I've always been good at spinning nightmare scenarios. Izzy's tone was firm. I will fix this. There was another wave of warm air, and I was standing at the counter at work again. Brendan picked up his coffee cup. Cheers, mate, and happy holidays. He walked away, and I stared at him. And then a familiar crowd of baffled people arrived, asking elementary questions in querulous tones. Once things settled down, I checked my phone, and the date and time concurred. It was the afternoon again, and this time, Brendan hadn't propositioned me. Izzy approached, head bowed, and said, A small coffee, please. Light or dark roast? I asked automatically. Light. I put his cup on the counter and waved his money away. On the house, I lowered my voice. So, what, you can turn back time? With some effort, yes. I thought it was the best way to undo the damage. I could have erased your friend's memory, but disrupting his mind further seemed... inappropriate. You did good, I whistled. I wouldn't mind that power if you're still looking to hook me up with a present. A guy who makes as many mistakes as I do could benefit from the ability to rewind time. Izzy shook his head. I would not give you such a power, Max. The cost is too great. To roll back time even a short way drains one's essence and shortens the lifespan by years. I will live so long that I scarcely notice the loss, but for you... Ah, okay, yeah, maybe not that, I sighed. Izzy, how about you just stop skulking around and observing me from the shadows and trying to figure out how to repay me? Just be my friend. That's all the repayment I want, honestly. He nodded gravely. He was awfully pretty when he was serious, though not as pretty as he was when he smiled. I would like that. I know that you are not busy tonight. Would you like to see my home? I nodded. I'd like that. Izzy told me to meet him at a particular stretch of beach outside town, a narrow place of sand squeezed between crumbly cliffs in the sea. There were signs warning people against camping because the cliffs might collapse, but I figured Izzy must be camping there anyway, maybe without even a tent. Maybe he just turned into warm air when he wanted to sleep. I didn't see where he came from, but suddenly he was standing beside me, looking at the water. I am learning to love the ocean, he said. You would be amazed. I even went for a swim this morning. Come inside. He walked toward the cliffs, and suddenly there was an opening the size and shape of the door. Dude, you live in a cave? 
That's not safe. I guess you're indestructible, but I mean for me. No harm will come to you. He took my hand, his skin warm and dry, and led me in. Beyond the shadowed door was a cozy room with stone walls, the floor covered in rugs and cushions and bright colors, the space lit by floating orbs of white light that bobbed near the ceiling. The crash of the waves outside were muffled, and the air was heavy with Izzy's familiar smoky smell. He sat down among the cushions, leaning against the wall. Back home I dwelt in a palace of glass and mist and mirrors and jewels. All those years cramped in the dollar made me accustomed to a smaller place, though. I sat down beside him. This is magical, Izzy. He chuckled. Yes, literally. I wanted you to see my home while it still exists. I have made a decision, you see. What's that? I am going to put my powers aside. I intend to wish myself human. Oh, is he? Why? There are things I would like to try that only a human can try. I frowned. What? Like, die? Another chuckle. I hope not. I intend to take all due care of myself. I do not propose to be human forever. I will set a term to live, say, seventy years, without my powers, at which point they will return. That should be long enough. I will make myself a very healthy human, too, an impeccable physical specimen. I may make a point of conjuring some gold and jewels as well, enough to keep me comfortable until I find work that appeals to me. There will be the possibility of injury, of death by misadventure, but that is part of being human, is it not? One of the big parts, I guess, but I ask again, why? I want, well, all will become clear, for now, on my last night as a being of great power, how would you like to learn to fly? If a good Jenny ever offers you the chance to go flying, guys, say yes. We went out onto the sand, rose up on currents of warm air, floated into the night sky, and flew over the sea. The moonlight sparkled on the waves, the air smelled of salt, and I've never laughed or cried so much in my life. I didn't see Izzy again until Christmas Day, when he knocked on my door holding a shopping bag. His hair was wet, slicked back like he'd just been swimming, and when he came in he stripped off his coat and scarf. His smell was different, sweeter somehow. He wore a tight shirt that shut off his biceps, and I gave one a squeeze. So this is mortal, Izzy, huh? I do have my vanity, Max. He pushed the shopping bag toward me. I looked inside, a bottle of Angel's Envy bourbon with a bow around the neck. Good choice, I said. I didn't get you anything. You have gotten me enough gifts for a lifetime, Max. We sat at my little kitchen table and I made us coffee. He was nervous, twisting the cup around in his hands, and finally he cleared his throat and said, I wanted to tell you something I couldn't before. He took a deep breath. 
I think of you often. At first, I thought it was only gratitude, because you set me free. But as the months passed, my feelings did not diminish. When I saw the way you looked at Brendan, I felt a burning in my chest. And in time, I realized it was jealousy. I wanted you to look at me the way you looked at him. Instead, I decided to give you him, because your happiness matters to me more than my own. I stared at him. Izzy had a crush on me? But I understand why that was wrong now, he went on. I came to see that I could never confess my feelings to you while I was in full possession of my powers. How could you trust me not to cast a spell on you? For that matter, how could I trust myself not to? I closed my eyes. Izzy, don't tell me you became mortal for me. No, he shook his head no. I wanted to learn to understand humans, and becoming one, living as one, seems the best way to do that. I am not a fool, Max. I do not expect you to have the same feelings for me that I have for you. But now that I am human, now that I no longer have the power to cloud minds or compel behavior, I thought it safe and fair to tell you how I feel. I will accept whatever answer you give and abide by your wishes. I looked at him, that serious face, so yearning, those eyelashes, and yeah, those biceps, okay, I'm not made of stone. I can't make any promises, Izzy. There's nothing certain in the world, but if you want to ask me out, go ahead and ask me out. Would you like to, he began, and I leaned over and kissed him. He tasted faintly of coffee and cloves, and something brown sugar sweet. We kissed for a long time, and when I pulled back, I said a little breathless, Are you sure you didn't put any magic into that? Oh, there was magic. He cupped my chin in his hand. But we made it together. Then together, the two of us made some more. And welcome back. And today we'll go straight on to feedback. And I'm pleased to hand you over to our new assistant editor, Khalida Muhammad Ali. Salam, good people. This is Khalida Muhammad Ali, assistant editor over here at PodCastle. Hope you've all been well. Feedback this week is for PodCastle episode number 385, Where Monsters Dance by Merk Rustad. There were some interesting comments with this story, and most of them were quite positive. Danuli says, That was phenomenal, layered indeed. I am not ashamed to admit that I cried when Monster was shot. I don't know why I didn't expect the stepfather to be king, but I didn't. That was just one of the many twists in this story. I also expected the wolf to be the bad guy. That made it so enjoyable for me. Tina's reading of it was another tick in the awesome column. This one will be a contender for best of 2015. Not a Robot says, 
shakes a fist in the air. Damn you, Merck. Now I have to eat every bad word I have ever said about the second person perspective. Excellent story and kudos on getting me to enjoy second person. Unblinking says, solid story. Took a lot of very familiar fairy tale elements and wove them into a very heartfelt modern story. I didn't see the stepfather being the king, but when that was revealed, my reaction was, of course he is. Why didn't I see that? What others said about the people being the real monsters and etc. Because being a monster is about what you do not want to look like. Well done. Thanks for those comments, guys. Well, that's it for now, but we'll be back next week. Hope to see you there. Thanks, Kalita. That was our show for this week. On behalf of everyone here at Podcastle, thank you for stopping by and listening to the story. We'll be back next week with another. Until then, this is your host, Graham Dunlop, reminding you that the Dada was a beautiful thing, but it was a prison, and to hell with prisons. Podcastle is a production of Escape Artists Incorporated. It's released under a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives license. Share it all you like, but don't change or sell it. Our theme music is by Shiva in Exile. To find out more about them, check their website at shiva-in-exile.de We rely on you to keep our podcastle flying. And through your generosity, we can continue to keep it flying. If you already donate, thank you. If you don't, you can support us from as little as $2 a month And even that little really, really helps. But we also love one-off donations. You can donate at the Podcastle website. Go to podcastle.org, find the Support Us section down the right-hand side, and click. If you can't donate, we do understand. You can also help by telling others about Podcastle. Write about us on your blog. Mention us on Facebook or Twitter. Leave us a five-star review in iTunes. Now folks, whilst this quote isn't directly related to the story, I would like to echo the words of Tiny Tim from Charles Dickens' immortal story, A Christmas Carol. God bless us, everyone.